0: This is Ari Koretsky, and welcome to Jews You Should Know. Introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so. But each is a Jew you should know. Just about three years ago, in March of 2018, I had the immense pleasure and honor of interviewing Rabbi Dr. Abraham Torski. He just passed away several days ago. Because I released this episode a while back, and we have so many new listeners since that time, I decided to re-release his interview so that many more people could benefit. And even those of you who have heard it already can certainly gain from hearing it once more. I'm leaving the interview as it was, including my introduction, and my simple but fervent hope is that many of us can take to heart the incredible lessons of his long and unbelievably productive life and in so doing can bring merit to his everlasting memory. And now, to my original introduction and my conversation with Rabbi Dr. Abraham Chorsky, may his memory be for a blessing. Today, I have the really exceptional pleasure of presenting to you Rabbi Dr. Abraham Tworsky. Dr. Tworsky is one of my personal heroes, and I regard him as a national treasure of the Jewish people. Dr. Tworsky, as of this recording, is Kaninahara 88 years old. He has authored 84 books, as you'll hear him discuss. Dr. Chorsky has, in my opinion, been almost single-handedly responsible for destigmatizing mental illness in the Jewish community, for demystifying the treatment of addictions, for disabusing the larger community of the notion that addictions don't strike close to home, insisting that they do and that they can and must be addressed. He has revolutionized the community's disposition towards the fields of psychology and psychiatry, promoted the ideals of self-esteem, and so many other really incalculably important contributions. All that in addition to his copious writings on more particularistic Jewish topics like prayer, the Torah, ethics of the fathers, and so on. All that being said, this was an interview that took considerable time to arrange, and due to Dr. Trotsky's advanced age, we recorded in a slightly unconventional manner. As a result, the quality of recording is definitely not ideal and will require a little bit of focused concentration to fully appreciate. You'll hear that at some points the audio is much stronger, but for the majority of the time it's somewhat compromised. I beg your indulgence ahead of time and promise that the added effort involved in consuming this week's episode is well worth the trade-off when considering the exceptional individual at the other end of the line. So without further ado, I present Rabbi Dr. Abraham Torsky. So doctor, what I'm really doing is through this podcast, I'm interviewing many leading and inspiring Jewish personalities and trying to get a sense of people's stories and backgrounds and what brought them to their achievements. And so maybe you could start at the beginning and just tell me a little bit about your own upbringing.
1: My father was a Hasidic Rebbe in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Why Milwaukee? He came over from Europe in 1927. He stayed in New York for a year or so and did not like it. He didn't like it then, and I don't like it now. <laughs> and uh, he was going to move to Chicago where there were many landslides. People from his area at oh, But he decided against it because a cousin, uh, rebbe, had moved there just a little earlier. and He didn't want to compete. But Milwaukee was not that far from Chicago, and there was a gathering of Russian-Ukrainian Jews there who were familiar with my father's background, so he opted for Milwaukee. I, I, I believe that everything is divinely guided. I don't think that I could have turned out to be whatever I was, good or bad, if I wasn't in Milwaukee. Why? Let I me mean, put it this way. The religious Jews in Milwaukee were those that had come over earlier in the ninth and 20th century. And by the time I was 15 years old, many of them had died. Their children had not follow their footsteps. There was no education. There was no yeshiva in Milwaukee. so their children were assimilated. I went to public school. Because there was no other facility. There was no, 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 no yeshiva. And the exposure that I had to public school, I think, served me well because I had a broad view of things rather than a very narrow view. I had one friend who was a shomer house. That's it. And so I mixed well with the population, which were, some of them were Jewish, but they were not observant. And then after my Bar Mitzvah, I went to Uchiva in Chicago, the Hebrew Theological College, based in Medrash In Skokie. Skokie wasn't even existing then. <laughs> It was the southwest Chicago. Skokie came much later. But it was a great experience. I had a super Russian yeshivas. and Hashem I learned very learned very well. And the show that my father originally occupied in Milwaukee, that relationship ended in about nineteen thirty six or thirty seven, and he converted the first floor of our home into a Bismedrish. We lived upstairs, and so very often I went down to this smithelich and mingled with the, with the old-timers. Several of them, the were Russians, were excellent chess players. And at age five or six or seven, I used to go down and watch them play. As a result of which, I developed a great skill in chess, and eventually nobody could beat me. So at age 10, I was a chess prodigy.
0: Have you continued to play throughout your life?
1: And they, anybody could beat me. <laughs>
0: Interesting story that's
1: associated with chess. I might as well tell it to you because it's one of my favorite stories. On Rosh Hashanah, there was a guest rabbi from Chicago who stayed with us. And Rosh Hashanah afternoon, Dad was resting. This rabbi said to me, You want to play chess? I said, It's Yantav. He says, What's wrong with playing chess on Yantav? Okay. I paid him and I beat him twice. The next night, which was the second night of Rosh Hashanah, the shaman comes over to me, and he says, the rabbi wants to see you in his study. Okay. So uh, I came in, and my father was looking in the sefer, and he didn't say anything to me, so I stood there until I was acknowledged. And afterwards, my father looked up at me, and he said, you played chess on Rosh Hashanah? I said, yes. The rabbi said, it's permissible. He didn't say a word. He just banged the glove into the safe, and almost imperceptibly, but enough for me to notice, he shook his head. That was a reprimand I got. understood. The rabbi wasn't wrong. The rabbi was saying, technically, legally, it's permissible. I thought most so that was, so it's not a day on which you play games. So I stood there and I waited. My father went back to study a safer. I can't leave until I'm dismissed. When dismissed means he said, unto gesundheit, you know, you're in good health. So I waited. and After a little while, And my father finally looked up. First time he had the twinkle in his eye. He said, you beat
0: him. I said, yes, twice. Things will die. (laughs) It's a favorite memory of mine. And it's also a teaching in Chinuch. You may have to reprimand someone. You may have to criticize a child. But try to make it so that he does not leave with a bad feeling. Because, yes, I, was, I got the message, but my father was proud that I had to beat him twice. <laughs> That's a beautiful story. It sounds like, you know, you were in public school. Where did you get your early Jewish education? Did your father study with you? Who took yeah. on that role? I had an
1: assignment. There was no school. I had a an alamit, and of course, I learned a great deal from my father, uh, and then the welcome of the Jewish education came after my bar mitzvah and the yeshiva. And I did well in the yeshiva. I was not stupid, and I uh, uh, accomplished a great deal. And my father, at this time, had moved, sold the house, and had moved to the uh, newer section in town. It's the migration, the Jewish migration to cities. And it was clear that he wanted me to become rabbi after him, take the shul. My father was a non-professional psychologist counselor who had an intuitive grasp of people's problems. And his study was full of people consulting him from morning to night, and sometimes well into the wee hours of the morning.
0: When they sought his advice, they sought his counsel. And the advice and counsel he gave them was excellent. My father received a, looking for words that I've got, recommendation from the Wisconsin Judiciary for his work that he did and it was known that when judges had a case that they found it difficult to handle they would say good rabbi me." and that's what i saw when i grew up that as a rabbi what you do is not only rituals and Torah study; you also become an advisor and counselor when i got smicha it was in 1951 at that time there had been a significant change because after world war ii psychiatry and psychology had a meteoric rise. And the result was that I realized people are not going to come to me for advice and counsel as I did to my father. They're going to go to the professional psychologist or psychiatrist. Why do you think that changed? I think that prior to World War II, psychiatry and psychology was an orphan in medicine. And after World War II, there was just a Explosion of psychiatry and psychology, and everybody was a a psychoanalyst, and everybody and the others went to psychologists. But it became clear to me the people who consulted my father for guidance are not going to come to me. Well, what then is going to be my role as a
1: rabbi? Doing rituals, officiating bar mitzvahs, weddings, funerals, unveilings. But as far as what I felt to be the role of a rabbi, it wasn't happening. Furthermore, the generation in 1952, the old generation had died off, were not interested. They were uneducated issues There was no yeshivas for them. They were uneducated, uninterested in adult education. So what am I going to do with all my learning? Who do I get to give it to? So I decided, look, I really wanted to do what my father was doing. I wanted to be the Excellent counselor that people looked up to, but I'm not going to do it as a rabbi. So I looked up the facilities and uh, got into medical school, Market Medical School in Milwaukee, in order to become a psychiatrist.
0: Was your father disappointed?
1: Not a bit, not a bit. He realized that that was the right thing to do. So I began my medical career. I was an assistant rabbi to my father for 10 years, but the last five years I was also part-time in medical school. And by 1960, I graduated medical school and I had had a year of internship in general medicine. I wanted to become a psychiatrist, so I applied to several places. And the best one that I thought was the best and what really was, was uh, Pittsburgh, the uh, Western Psychiatric Institute, which was a orthodox Freudian school. Freud was the gospel. And you didn't dare show any distaste for Freud. You just accepted it. Of course, I was naive. And I said, okay, this is, this is it. And so I became very much appreciative of Freud, who indeed was a very great person. although he made many serious mistakes. And then when I came back after the first year, I came back to Milwaukee. And my father said, what have you learned in psychiatry? I said, psychoanalysis. I explained to them the patient must come four times a week. This can go on for three, four years. My brother said, can I tell you a story? Said, of course. So He said, in one of the areas of one of the faithdoms in Russia, there was a poet who was very benign, in contrast to other parrots and who were anti-Semitic, and he used to foment pogroms. This parrots was very peaceful. He was not aggressive. And the local anti Semites tried to provoke him. You can't be tolerant of the Jews, right? And they wanted him to make a pogrom. Again, he was a pacifist, and that wasn't his liking. But they found his Achilles heel, because he had a pet dog, and his pet dog was everything to him, his constant companion. So they so went and said to him, "Your lordship, You know that the Jews are very clever people. They know how to teach a dog how to talk. They would never do it for you because you're not one of them. And they will tell you it's impossible. It can't be done. Trust me. It's just because you're not Jewish. Well, that, it, it got to him. He says, that can't be. I've been protective of them and they owe me a great deal of favor. So he called the leaders of the Jewish community. And he said, you know, I have my pet dog. He's my constant companion. We have a way of communicating. But of course, it would be so much easier if I could talk with him. He could talk with me. I know that you people have a way of teaching a dog how to talk. So I want you to take this dog and teach him how to talk. The Jews heard this. They said, Your Excellency, what are you asking of us? It's an impossibility. Nobody ever heard of teaching a dog to talk. Don't tell me that. It's just because I'm not a Jew. And all the protection that I've given you, that's how you pay it back for me? So I became very irate. He says, here, take the dog and teach him how to talk. And if not, I want every Jew out of my fiefdom. So they got together, what do we do with this Mashuga? And he gave him a time and says, The end of thirty days? You haven't taken my dog to teach him how to talk? I don't want any Jew in my fiefdom. Get out. So they held counsel, they prayed, whatever. What do we do with this guy? There's no sense of talking logic to him. Toward the end of the thirty days, one of the lesser luminaries in town, a very humble shoemaker, came in and said to the leaders of the community, Look, let me go and talk with, you, with the poets. He said, what do you mean? You do? You're going to talk with the poets." All the leading rabbis have talked with them. And, you know, he's just completely resistant. And it's not logic. He's gone to and You can't do anything about it. He says, look, you already loaded your wagons to leave the community. What is there to lose? Let me talk with him. Okay, go talk with him. So he goes to the palace. And about half an hour later, he comes out with the dog on the leash. And they say to him, what are you doing? What are you doing with that dog? He says, I told the parents that I would teach the dog how to talk. So, what are you, crazy? I explained to him that a human being is more intelligent than a dog, and yet it can take three years for a child to learn how to talk properly. So he has to understand that with a dog, it may take six years. He says, so, so what are you going to be at the end of six years? He says, look, we've got six years to, to live in, in peace and who knows what's going to happen in the next years? The parts may die, I may die, the dog may die. Something's going to happen to get us out of this. <laughs> but my father said to me, You're going to treat a patient for three years, for four years, and you're going to say that your treatment was effective. You know how many things are going have happened during those three years that changed the person's life? <laughs> he got married, he got divorced, he got a new job. I'm oh, uh, so having to be a little bit suspicious of the uh, norm of uh, Freud. But anyway, I think I had a very, very pleasant experience with their psych and uh, I became the fair-haired boy of the head of the department. And then I took two, two years at a state hospital. And at the end of those two years, I came back to the, the psychiatric institute because the uh, director had promised me that I could get on the staff. During the residency, I spent a two-month rotation at Pittsburgh St. Francis Hospital. That was a unique episode, a unique hospital. It was a 750-bed hospital, general hospital, of which 300 beds were psychiatric. Huh. With the tail wagging the dog. And I was there for two months, the rotation. And I had to note that you know, I, I was on call all the time except for Chavez. So the director says to me, you know, I we owe a great debt of gratitude to St. Francis Hospital. They're the only facility in town that has provided emergency psychiatric services. I want you to consider the position as clinical director. They have not been able to hold a clinical director. So I looked to them and I said, you really wanted to go to St. Francis? He says, look, give it a try. Go meet with Sister Adele, she's the head of the hospital, and i see what you can work out. I said, okay, to, 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 to do the boss a favor, I'll go. I had no intention of becoming clinical director of St. Francis Hospital. But I went and I met with Sister Adele. She was a very unusual person, very devoted, very caring for older patients. And uh, in fact, I once said to the bishop, if you don't canonize Sister Adele, I'll lose respect for the church. But anyway, she sat with me and I told the sister, I am not the one for you. First of all, I know what it's like here. Uh, I was here for two months. You need somebody who's available seven twenty four. I'm not available seven twenty four. Like a Friday afternoon my telephone is shut down. She said, Doctor Tversky, we would never think of calling you on your Sabbath. And I sister, this is July now and I have planned to go to Israel for two months. She said, wait it for so long we'll wait longer. So I them, let me think it over. She walked me to the door And she said, Dr. Tversky, I know that you're going to come on our staff because the Holy Ghost sent you to us. How do you deal with that? (laughs) So I took the position with the intention I'll give it a trial for a year. I ended up 20 years. Wow. And I did some wonders at St. Francis. I brought in a psychiatric training program at that time. There was no psychiatric residencies, unless you were affiliated with a university, and we were not affiliated, and yet I got the residency. So this was a a stroke of luck. So that brings me up to the end of the residency, and again, I have a lot of respect for what I learned, the theories of Freud, but I really did not buy into it completely. This was, at that point, the attitude was, all psychological problems are due to psychological pressures or stresses or whatever. No one considered that it could be a medical problem. And then in the first year of psychiatry, the revolution came out that there was a medication, an antidepressant, that could change people's feelings and cure their depressions without deep psychotherapy. So... Um, I developed a skill in psychopharmacology and I had an excellent 20 years at St. Francis. One of the things that St. Francis did was open up a detox unit for alcoholics because all the other hospitals rejected alcoholics. They were not desirable patients. And Sister Adele said, they need help, we're going to open our doors to them. So she opened up a psychiatric detox unit. When I came to St. Francis,
0: there was a the detox unit of 30 beds, and it was a revolving door. Anybody could come in at any time, and there were some alcoholics who were admitted four or five times during one month. This is said dope, but not a lower refusal. That patient could have been your father. You've got to have consideration. But after a while, I realized that we're not doing these people any good by detoxing them for five days and then setting them up. We have to have a rehab to give them a, a foothold on recovery. The only big rehab available to us was 400 miles away in eastern Pennsylvania. So I went and met with them. And we had a good relationship, and we sent some of our patients there. But I realized that we're going to have to build a rehab on our own. And this was a monumental thing. It was a completely unrealistic thing to do. I borrowed $2.2 million from the FHA with a government-continued loan. So they didn't give us anything, but we had a loan. And we found the place on the outskirts of town, and we built up a beautiful building costing over $2 million, which opened in 1973. But that is still functioning today as the Gateway Rehabilitation Center, one of the best rehab centers for alcoholism and drug addiction. The only contact that I have with them now is occasional lectures by Skype. In the meantime, I started to write some books. And the first book that I wrote was on self-esteem, entitled Like Yourself and Others Will Too. It was turned on by 18 publishers. And then the agent, for some reason or other, went back to the first refusal and convinced them to take it. And so in 1978, that first book was published. And was that a secular publisher, or was it written for the Jewish population?
1: That was done for the general population. A year or two later, I wrote another book on alcoholism. And then I started writing for the Jewish population. And
0: art school publications took my books. And to make a long story short, last month, my 84th book was published. 84th. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) That's a lot of books. Among those 84 were three books that were a cooperative effort between me and Charles Schultz, the author of Peanuts. How did that come about? Schultz was a brilliant person, and he had a unique way of expressing things in a cartoon, much more impressive than didactic teaching. And so I told him that I'd like to explain what his cartoons are really about. He said, okay. So we did three books together. And uh, this was way back in 1977. And some of those books are still active. So I had a good relationship with Charles Schultz, and got some notoriety out of that. And then we built Gateway against all odds because Blue Cross was not honoring treatment for alcoholism or drug addiction. And so I went around snoring to keep the place open. I got money from foundations, money from individual donors, it wasn't until we opened, we took our first patient in 1973. It wasn't until 1978 that we had the first insurance payment. Huh. So talking about a nonprofit. profit we were the most non-profit ever. <laughs> and if you go on the internet and you look up gatewayrehab.org, you see what the place is like. It's one of the leading rehabs of the country. Just this past year, we had around a $6 million building to provide special treatment for adolescents. Because the young epidemic is just killing our adolescents. So we have this beautiful building into which we take in the adolescent and the family. It's extremely important for the family be on board. So that's where we're up to almost now. I stayed as medical director of St. Francis for 20 years, during the latter part of the 20 years. I was the medical director of Gateway Rehab Center. I don't try to remember when I finished that, but it was probably around 1980-something, 1990 90, that uh, I retired from active role I always played a significant role in the running of the uh, institute until I became really disabled and couldn't do it anymore. Why did you get into writing? What inspired you to start writing, and especially for the Jewish community?
1: What inspired me to, to write? writing? What inspires anybody, to, any artist? To, it's like a mother who, nursing mother, who wants to give her milk to the baby, and if she can't do it, she's in pain. And so once I started writing, Especially after my first two books were well received in the general population and then Arts it was great. I published some very interesting books, very heavily influenced by my work in psychology and psychiatry. For example, recovery programs for alcoholism are essentially based on the twelve steps, twelve step programs of Alcoholics Anonymous. I found that the twelve steps to the law Alcoholics Anonymous, which were developed by Bill Wilson it was not Jewish, developed them in 1936, are word for word what we would have done had we developed the program based on the uh, Jewish ethics and Jewish principles and Jewish philosophy. So, you know, once you have a success, and you get one book written, it grabs you. You want to do more and more. And then I had the four books of Charles which some of them I still have sold. Uh, they're still being uh, sold in One of the best ones was when do the good things start? It's still available on Amazon and stores. And there's nothing like success to stimulate you to write more.
0: Did you feel that when you were writing for the Jewish community, that there was a lack of awareness in the community about mental health issues and that you were providing something really necessary in elevating the awareness in the community about mental health issues? Say that there was not much in mental health issues at the
1: beginning. There was total denial. You can't have a Jewish alcoholic. They don't exist. Sugar is a good. Then I began to admit one after another Jewish alcoholics. And then the drug problem hit by crazy. A lot of Jewish kids got up with the drugs and uh, lethal consequences. the this, this statistics are out about how many Jewish kids die from suicide. Like Accidental suicide, maybe, I from a lower dose of drugs. But the community wouldn't hear me. And I just kept on battering and battering to make them listen. And eventually it broke through the denial. There still is denial, even after all of the progress we've made. And there's denial among the medical profession. As an example, I visited the hospital where I interned, and I met one of the residents there, and I said, Do you have any interesting cases? So he held the chart in his hand. And we're doing a workup on this woman. And so I said, Can I see the chart once? So I looked at the chart and I said, Did you ever ask her how she drinks? I think she's alcoholic. He said, She may have a occult cancer. And I gotta give her the benefit of the doubt. I said, You mean having cancer is the benefit of the doubt compared to alcoholism? But that was some of the medical profession and so it took a lot of effort to educate the medical profession. So it's been an exciting career. Sometimes I think, if I had to do it all over again, what would I do? Exactly what I did. What would I know the difference?
0: That's a wonderful feeling, I would imagine. A sense of satisfaction. Besides the books that you wrote on psychology and mental health issues, you wrote quite a few Jewish commentaries. right? Books on prayer and on the Torah and so forth, which I use frequently myself, by the way, and greatly enjoy and appreciate. So thank you. What inspired those kinds of writings, which were really different than your professional-related books? There's a great deal of knowledge in Torah, and
1: unfortunately, there are Torah students and uh, professionals, professional teachers, who... Are you not fully aware of how the door can impact a person's life? And so I used to teach about that also. I had a chance to be invited to uh, places for scholars and residents. I I enjoyed it. And uh, the only thing that I don't enjoy is paying the price of reaching an old age.
0: Have you found there's a lot of confluence between... Judaism and psychology, it sounds like you're a strong believer that the 12-step program is not only compatible, but in many ways, syncopatic with Jewish values. What about the 12 steps, and what about Judaism makes you feel that way, that, that there's such a close or overlapping relationship? I have written several books that describe how the 12 steps relate to Judaism, and I once said, that if Bill Wilson were alive now, I would sue him for plagiarism, (laughs) for taking everything out of the Jewish philosophy and practice and putting him into the 12 steps. And in general, there's been a significant interest in, especially in orthodoxy, uh, and mental health. Uh, Way back when, when when I was a psychiatrist, there was very little emphasis in the Jewish community on mental health. A few years ago, so exactly 20 years ago, the group got together and formed an organization called NETFISH. NETFISH means soul. NETFISH is an organization of professional men and women who are experts in their particular fields of psychiatry and psychology and social work. I don't know what the census is now. I think they have over 400 members that never used to be. So there's been some significant change. And there's been some significant change. Although well, there are some stalwarts, don't contaminate Torah with psychiatry and psychology. Okay, I can't help but their opinion. Somebody once said, I believe that everybody has a right to their opinion. When you mentioned that you think that Bill Wilson would be accused of plagiarism, <laughs> what are some examples of those specific areas of comprehensive overlap? Well, you can list them one by one. For example, first step of uh, recovery is to admit that you have a problem and that you no longer can control it and that you need extra extra help. And the second step is realizing that
1: you can't do it yourself, that you have to turn to God. So God has become a very strong part of it. Another step in is to make a thorough list of the things that you've done wrong and admit them to God, to yourself, and to another human being. It's a typical way of doing Shiva. One of my recent books I was entitled uh, Shiva Through Recovery. So how Recovery is Paying. Pain, so all the 12 steps have their sources in Talmud. And I don't know how, how Bill Wilson got to this. It's an amazing thing that he had these precious insights. And it's now spread as a treatment for all other actions. The program for alcoholism, for drugs, for gambling, for eating disorders, for sexual addictions. And the number of groups that have proliferated across the, across the globe, millions of people are involved in the recovery program.
0: Do you have a, uh, a favorite book <laughs> that you've written? Several favorite ones. One of the first books that I wrote for the Jewish community was entitled Generation to Generation, which is the traditions that have been handed down, but very well received, still available. And one day, I was approached by a alcoholic woman, a Jewish alcoholic woman, and she said, Dr. Tversky, isn't there any spirituality in Judaism? I said, what? She says, how come there's no Jewish books of no spirituality? The only books of spirituality are written by Catholic priests. I so, okay, I'll try and remedy that. So the first book that I wrote was entitled Living Each Day. Well, it's based on the idea of one day at a time. That's been uh, in print now for maybe 20 years. It's very good. Generation to Generation is about things that you've learned that you pass down to your children?
1: Yes. It's essentially my father's home and what went on in my father's home. It's
0: beautiful. What was the Hasidic roots of your of father?
1: My father's origin, was from a Russian Hasidic group of Chernobyl, which all of the later ramifications and derivatives. And my mother was a Halberstam, so she had a Polish and Hungarian Hasidic thing. Those were the two main forces of Hasidism, we also... We had some association with Kabat, but I did not become a devotee of Kabat, although I have an enormous, enormous respect for the Rebeh I like was several times.
0: I've heard it quoted from you before that all of your books, or at least all of your mental health oriented books, were really centered around one theme and extensions or expressions of one theme, that theme being self esteem. Is that accurate?
1: that goes through every book is the importance of self-esteem and the disaster when people are not aware of their character traits. Everything goes on self-esteem.
0: How do you see that expressing itself in ways that are not so obvious?
1: I think that most human problems, whether it's individual problems, familial problems, social problems, are very much, I can say, uh, but invariably the problem of self-esteem if a person has good self-esteem realizes his own self-worth that's almost an immunity to developing a, a psychiatric illness
0: Now of course there are psychiatric illnesses that have their ability to do with psychology because they are mental and chemically oriented problems and those have to be treated chemically so, we have a good stock of antidepressants, which, if used, that, used properly, can help a person overcome overcome depression. Certainly, it seems like you believe that the notion of strong self esteem is not at all incompatible with notions of sublimation to a higher authority and the sense that we cannot achieve or find healing recovery without that help. Some of the great Muslim authorities. Said that some people believe that humility involves devaluing oneself. And they said, anybody who is not aware of his potentials and what he can accomplish is not humble, he's a fool. And so we have to realize that humility is, and I said, the Torah says that the most humble person ever walked on the earth was Moses. And yet Moses was well aware of his extraordinary skills. We have a, a bunch of defenses, psychological defenses. Uh, they kick in automatically, uh, but that doesn't mean that they're all good. The individual who denies his abilities and thinks poorly of himself is have to have significant problem relating to a father, mother, as a husband, or wife. Because in order to have a good relationship, one has to have a good feeling about oneself. Now, that does not mean what we refer to as GAIVA or egocentricity, not at all. So if we know our true value and have a great deal of self-respect, confidence in ourselves, we may need help, but the can overcome all the challenges. You mentioned earlier that if you had to change anything about your career, your life, you wouldn't, which is a wonderful posture to be able to assume. What are you proudest of? In this illustrious and, and long career that you've had, I think that I, it's probably a close. The emphasis on self-esteem is part of important mental health, and the realization of how much addiction occurs in our lives—alcohol and drugs, gambling, food, sexual addictions. I just uh, and there are addictions that we haven't even identified. And I think that if we could uh, get a, truly get a handle. That. I think none of our lives could be happier. Dr. Tversky, just in closing, tell our listeners what you're up to now. You're living in Jerusalem, I understand? Yes. How long have you been there? Almost two years. Wonderful. Are you uh, still writing? What are you doing to fill your days? Well,
1: my writing has been limited significantly because uh, probably as a side effect of medications. I developed a severe hand tremor. Really? So I can't even type. But thank God that's improving. And again, my memory used to be very sharp. But uh, at 88, it's deteriorating. And it's very difficult to write without good memory. And, and, and you have to run and look everything up. And, uh, but nevertheless, I hope we'll be able to turn it around.
0: Dr. Twersky, I cannot thank you enough for your time. And I want to wish you many more years of good health. You're up to 84 books, and I think we need another four to match your current age, and God willing, many more from there, because I know that the Jewish world and the world at large has been immeasurably enriched by them, and will continue to be so, God willing, for many years to come. So thank you so, so much this has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.